Can a person really change? In, in the musical Oliver, the character Fagin uh, asked that question in song. He sings, can, can a man change? As the walls are closing in on him, he's about to be caught up in his, his uh, schemes. He and his little band of pickpockets are about to be held accountable for their actions. And he sings a song, Can a Man Change? I'm sure he was hopeful that the answer was yes. It's a great question. All of us in various ways want to know, can the insensitive, critical spouse become loving and supportive? Can the addict become free from compulsion and become sober? Can, can the miserly person become generous with their resources? Now, you can add your own questions here, but the question is the same. Can people change? Really change? Or maybe if we're honest with ourselves, the better question would be, can I change? The possibility of change or, or conversion from one action to another is one of the most relevant topics uh, in almost every area of human endeavor. For example, psychologists and psychotherapists and, and um, psychiatrists debate whether Freud was right. Freud seemed to say that you cannot transcend your childhood. That the best you can do is to make peace with what your parents did to you. That's kind of depressing, isn't it? In other words, Freud said you can't really change. You are set in your personality and who you are at a very early age. But among Freud's most recent disciples, like Eric Erickson, they say things like, well, yes, Freud was great. He opened up the whole unconscious to us, but he was wrong on this point because, yes, you can transcend your childhood. You don't have to be what your parents made you. Depending on your parents, that could be good news. I don't know. In Russia, supposedly, today the number one graduate study subject on the topic of, uh, in the area of psychology is this theory of a conversion. But it's not from a, a spiritual or Christian point of view. They understand the political significance that if there is a way to change a person's values, motivations, goals, and lifestyles, convert to different views, that you have the ultimate power beyond the nuclear weapons. And so they study conversion or change like a scientist dissects a frog, wanting to know how it all works with the end game of using that knowledge to further their political goals. But what does the Bible say about conversion? What does the Bible say about change or, or transformation? We're in the middle of a sermon series on the topic of transformation, before and after stories. And before and after stories tend to inspire us. You know, the person who loses a lot of weight or the person who... Um, makes a radical change, they, or they get free from addiction, or whatever it might be. They come from a dysfunctional family, and they, they change the trajectory of their family tree. Stories of transformation are, are inspiring to us. And so we've looked in the scriptures at stories of people whose lives have been changed radically after an encounter with God or with Jesus Christ. So, for example, we started with the person of Saul, a persecutor of, of Christians, a very violent man towards the Christian church. And yet he meets Christ, the risen Christ, on the road to Damascus, and his life is changed. And he becomes Paul, and he becomes the apostle to the Gentiles. And, we, and billions of people have been impacted by his letters that we find in the New Testament. We looked at the person of Job. Job, a, a very righteous man, a very well-off man, a very good man, and yet he loses everything in an instant. Horrible, ter terrific, uh, uh, terrible things happen to his, his family and his life. 
And he, he wrestles with this and he encounters God and we follow his story through the book of Job and in the end he comes to a different understanding of God. And he's at peace. And he has God's perspective. Well, today we come to the story of, a, of Zacchaeus. But before we look at the story of Zacchaeus and his before and after dynamics of his story, what does the Bible tell us about conversion or change? A couple of things. First, personal transformation is at the very heart of the gospel, the good news. The gospel says to us that it's never too late for anybody to change. That nobody is locked into what he or she has always been and always done. That we are not a prisoner of our, of our track record. That we can be changed. That is at the heart of the gospel. And conversion and the possibility to be changed is God's gift and offer to everybody. God is in the business of changing lives. We can think of some classic examples. For instance, C.S. Lewis, the author of the Chronicles of Narnia, but a lot of other powerful books as well. He was a militant atheist and an Oxford professor. And the last thing he wanted to do was to be converted to a Christian. But God sneaks up on him, and Lewis is surprised by joy. That's the title of his spiritual autobiography. And in it he says, I am dragged kicking and screaming the most reluctant convert in all the world into the kingdom. Or St. Augustine, another example, the monk with a, with a mistress. He's struggling with his soul. He sits under a tree. In his book, Confessions, he says, O Lord, make me pure, but not yet. But one day God gets a hold of him. And Augustine becomes St. Becomes Augustine. Uh, last example, William Booth, a very unlikely rough-cut man who said over 100 years ago that nobody in London cares about the poor and the drunk and the winos. And so he founded the Salvation Army. And one day he said, Lord, I give you everything there is in this man, William Booth. Do with me what you will. And a movement was started that changed the lives of tens and hundreds of thousands of people because one man was changed, was transformed. And the Bible tells us that we all have this opportunity. The Scripture is full of stories of lives changed radically and permanently. So now we go to our story of Zacchaeus. It's a, it's a fascinating story. And we know a couple of things about Zacchaeus. Um, if you grew up in the church and went to Sunday school as a kid, we know this about Zacchaeus. Ask the kid, they'll say, well, he was short, right? We all know Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. He was vertically challenged. We also know what he did for a living. He worked for the Roman Empire's version of the IRS. Okay? He was a tax collector. And not just any tax collector, but, but it says the chief tax collector. So we know that he was good at his job. He oversaw all the tax collectors in the region. And so his job, job was to gather ta taxes for the Romans, which certainly would not have made him popular. And he, along with a vast majority of tax collectors in his day, would have been corrupt. They would have collected what the Romans asked them to, but they also would have added some on the top for themselves. So what this tells us about him is we can read between the lines is that he was clever, he was manipulative, he knew how to work the system, he was corrupt, he was immoral, he was willing to shaft his own people to line his pockets. It tells us he was materialistic, thinking of himself. Not a very flattering portrait, is it? Can a man like this change? 
Well, in Luke 19, we see that Zacchaeus lives in Jericho, west of Jerusalem, along the Jordan River. Jericho was a crossroads, a trade route for people coming from the west or the east. And Jesus is coming through Jericho. And it's a moment of great excitement in the area. People are all coming from all over to, to see and to hear this kind of strange, weird, wonderful, holy man who may or may not be the Messiah. And so Zacchaeus comes. He's apparently curious about who Jesus is. And as we know, we've already established he's short. The crowds are there. And either they won't let him through or he can't get through. And so he has to climb a tree. And Jesus passes by in this sort of parade of people, the crowd of people on both sides of the road. And he looks up and he sees Zacchaeus. And to paraphrase, Jesus says, Zacchaeus, me and my men are hungry. I want to come to your house for a meal. Zacchaeus scrambles down and he goes home and he gets the servants ready and busy. And, and then he and Jesus have an amazing encounter. Now, in the Middle East culture of the day, to be invited into somebody's home for a meal signified friendship and acceptance. So Jesus simply wasn't being polite here. and He wasn't looking for a free meal for himself or his disciples. Jesus was making a point to the to Zacchaeus, to the disciples, and to the crowd. And you can see that by the reaction of the crowd in verse 7. It says, All the people saw this and began to mutter, He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. You can kind of picture them or hear them spitting this out in contempt, judgmentally, or maybe in surprise for some of them. I mean, Jesus was seen as holy, a man of God, a true prophet, and he's interacting with the, the worst of sinners, a man who's betrayed his own people, who's taken advantage of his own people, lined his pockets on the backs of the poor and the downtrodden. And yet Jesus goes to his house for a meal. Now, when you look at the New Testament, Jesus consistently receives criticism for his choice of company. He was known as a friend of sinners. When criticized in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus said this in 2.17, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners. And so they go home and they sit and they have this, this meal. No doubt it would, you know, would have been a pretty good meal. I'm sure Zacchaeus wanted to impress Jesus. We don't know what they talked about. You know, maybe I picture Jesus asking Zacchaeus a lot of questions, penetrating questions. You know, tell me about your life. Tell me why you came to see me today. What questions do you have about, about me? Why I'm here, what I'm doing? Regardless, we can see that, that Zacchaeus was powerfully and profoundly impacted. Because in verse 8 it says, But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. That's pretty amazing. Why would he do that? Why not? Okay, Jesus, I, I believe this stuff, I think. I'm going to start going to synagogue every week. And I'm going to stop swearing and I'm going to stop cheating. I'm going to start being nicer to people, thinking of others more often than myself. All good things. And I'm guessing that he started to do those things. But why go to the extreme action of giving away half of everything he owned and paying back fourfold restitution. 
The answer, I think, has to do with, with a change that needed to happen in Zacchaeus. And I think at some level you knew that. You know, there's a 2012 Boston Globe article which asks the following question. Does money change you? The article says, here in the home of the American dream, most people are convinced that gaining a lot of money wouldn't change who they are as people. Then they ask the question, is that true? The article reported, as a mounting body of evidence is showing, wealth can actually change how we think and behave, not for the better. It says, rich people have a harder time in general, in general, connecting with others, showing less empathy to the extent of dehumanizing those who are different from them. They are less charitable and generous. They are less likely to help somebody in trouble. And they are more likely to defend an unfair status quo. The article says, if you think you behave differently in their place, meanwhile, you're probably wrong. These just aren't inherited traits, but developed ones. In other words, the article concludes, money changes who you are. The article went on to summarize research studies conducted by Kathleen Vose, a professor at the University of Minnesota. And Carlson and her colleagues have found that the, even the mere suggestion of getting more money, a technique known as priming, makes people less friendly, less sensitive to others, and more likely to support statements like some groups of people are simply inferior to others. Another series of studies from the University of California at Berkeley concluded that wealthier people tend to be less compassionate towards others in a bad situation than people from lower class backgrounds. And then the, the punchline of the article is, if you win a lottery and you want to avoid becoming an insensitive lout, there is a simple solution. One of the researchers summarized it this way, give at least half the money away. So Zacchaeus at some level knew that his that all the money he had wasn't good for him. It was changing his attitude. It was changing his perspective. It was changing how he treated others. And so he, in a really radical, sudden, seemingly sudden um, pr- proclamation, stands up and says, look, Jesus, I will give away half of what I have and I'll pay back fourfold of anybody, anybody that I've cheated. What an incredible, radical change. Now, I don't believe it was just sudden. I believe that God at some level had been working in Zacchaeus' heart and mind, unsettling things in his spirit. At some level, Zacchaeus probably felt empty, felt some guilt or shame for how he had gotten where he had gotten. Uh, but when he encounters Jesus, it all comes to, to a head. It all clicks. And he's changed and he's transformed seemingly in, a, in just a brief encounter with Jesus Christ. So to answer the question, can people change? Yes, of course. With God, all things are possible. People can change, can be transformed. So what marks authentic change? I want to conclude with that with a couple of thoughts and then we'll move to the baptisms. What marks authentic change? How do we know what real change looks like in a person's life? Where scripture story was that he shows us a few things. First, here is a man who now has a new center, a new purpose, a new foundation in his life. Jesus Christ is now the center of his life. Jesus Christ has moved onto the throne of his life. His pursuit of riches and materialism has been bumped off the throne. 
Secondly, he appears to have a different perspective. He's, he's full of joy. He wants his friends to meet Jesus. He's, he's full of joy. He has a different attitude and demeanor about him. And a very concrete action is instead of using people and loving things, he's reversed that. He now loves people because Jesus loves him. And he uses things to, to help other people. That's the fruit of repentance. Repentance is a, a biblical word which simply means a 180 degree turn. It's a, the Greek word is metanoia. Basically, it means you're going in one direction and there's a 180 degree turn. It's not just a 90 degree turn or a little bit of a turn. It's a radical change. So a person who is greedy and self-focused, when they repent, they turn around. They're generous. They're others-focused. A person who is angry and bitter, they turn around. The fruit of repentance is they love others. They serve others. They have peace. And they have joy. You can apply this with all sorts of areas in our lives, but the bottom line is, is, is the fruit of repentance is a 180-degree turnaround in your life, a radical, noticeable change, a transformation in a person's life. And the key is, is that we're all offered this possibility of changing. I mean, think back to the story, the difference between Peter and Judas. Judas Iscariot and Peter, both disciples, both traveled with Jesus for 12 years, for 12 years, three years, 12 disciples, for three years. Both of them loved by Jesus. Both of them major league blow it. Judas' response is, I blew it, it's all over. He kills himself. Peter weeps, is heartbroken. Jesus comes to him and says, it's okay, you blew it, but you are still loved. It's not too late. You can, you can begin again. You can be changed. And Peter is changed and transformed. So yes, people can change. We can change. Where would you like to see change in your life? Where would you like to see transformation in your life? Just as Jesus went to Zacchaeus' home, he wants to come to ours as well. Just as Jesus radically changed Zacchaeus, he wants to radically transform who you and I are as well. And it begins with acknowledging our need to change. It begins with asking Jesus to come into our lives and change us. And it begins with concrete action and steps. Repentance. The fruit of repentance. That show we have changed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the good news that we can see change in our lives. That the things we don't like about ourselves, the things we feel guilty or ashamed of, the things we wish were different, that we can see change. We can be changed. We can be transformed as we repent and come to you and, and spend time with you, Jesus, and ask you to help us and to change us. Father, as, as we come to you today, we, we just ask that your Spirit <laughs> will work in our hearts and minds in a way that we would be like Zacchaeus, that we would make concrete steps to see change in our life. Whether it involves loosening up our hold on material things and being more generous, 
whether it's releasing our need to control and and giving things to you and and spending more time doing your work, whether it's letting go of past hurts and anger and bitterness that have set in and, and letting you bring about a peace and a joy and a forgiveness. Whatever it might be, Lord, we bring those things to you and we ask that you would help us to change, to be changed by the power of your Spirit within us. That people around us would see a noticeable, radical change. That others, too, would be inspired to come to you and see the same story, the same transformation in their lives. Through Christ our Lord. Amen.